Open your Bibles to the book of James. Today we follow up with the second part of a two-part series on the problem of partiality in the church. The problem of partiality in the church. It's an issue that James deals with in the first 13 verses of chapter 2, and it provides another kind of a test for you and I. He's providing a number of tests throughout this book to help you better examine yourself to see if you are truly in the faith. It's not the last one he'll give. He'll give others throughout this book, but this is one that helps us to understand the genuineness of whether or not we know the gospel. And the essence of the test relates to how you treat others who are different than you, especially how you treat those who are disdained, who are shunned by society. He's asking you the question, do you show favoritism? Do you treat certain people with greater favor, with greater kindness and and deference? Do you have a tendency to treat them differently based on their status or their possessions or their money or the way they dress or their lifestyle, their fame or their looks or whatever it might be? Do you treat them with more kindness, more patience? Do you give them more benefit of the doubt simply by those external things? The message from James is that that kind of favoritism, if it exists in your life, it is totally inconsistent with someone who claims to understand and know the gospel. To operate like that is to operate according to the world, to operate in a way that is contrary to the message of Christ, contrary to your profession of faith, and it is nothing better than a reflection of the broken and fractured and fallen society that you originate from. The church ought not to put on that kind of display. It ought not to show those kinds of preferences and favoritism within its midst. It ought to demonstrate a supernatural oneness, a supernatural unity to the world that transcends all of those external things and demonstrates the gospel in a powerful way. It ought to do that if for no other reason. That's what God does. God is impartial. It's one of His greatest characteristics. When He considers people, when he considers you, he doesn't look at you the way other people look at you. He doesn't think about you with all the outward stuff that the world uh, sort of lays on you in layers. He doesn't attach certain significance to rank and to race and to status and wealth and education or whatever it might be. God doesn't look at all that outward stuff. He looks at the heart. And so the Christian and the church ought to follow suit. It ought to ignore all that outward stuff and it ought to approach people the way God approaches them. It ought to demonstrate by the way that we love one another that we're all sinners before Him, that we all are in need of the same mercy and grace, that we're all in need of the same forgiveness, that we all have received it equally. We've all received the same Holy Spirit, we've all been baptized equally into the body of Christ. None of us stands above the other at the foot of the cross. And to that end, James writes to us, beginning in verse 1, he says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, And you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing, and you say, sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? which he's promised to those who love him. But you've dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you, the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. But if you show partiality, 
you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who shows shows no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. James is dealing here with favoritism, with partiality. And he's dealing with it especially as it relates to the poor. It's applicable, of course, in all kinds of situations. Not just in economic situations, but in educational situations, in racial situations, national situations. All kinds of situations, it's applicable. But one of the universal ways it displays itself, no matter what society and what the racial makeup of your church might be, one of the universal ways this expresses itself is in favoritism towards the wealthy. And so James confronts this partiality, giving us six reasons to renounce favoritism and to treat all people equally in the love of Christ. The first one, the most basic reason to renounce favoritism we looked at last time, which is the fact that favoritism is incompatible with faith in Christ. He says, brothers, show no partiality in verse 1, as you hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Don't try to combine your profession of faith with that stuff. To do that would be to betray the gospel. It would be to suggest that you have never really understood the gospel, the basis on which you approach Christ. So we have to renounce it for that reason. Secondly, we renounce it, we renounce favoritism because it's indicative of evil intentions. And he tells us in verse 2 through 4 this story about if a man comes in with all this fine clothing and and gold rings and a, a man comes in in shabby clothing and you show favoritism to one and not to another, he says, have you not become judges with evil motives. In other words, are you no better than the corrupt court systems in ancient Israel or in modern day or wherever you might find them? Are you no better than those corrupt judges who look at a a defendant when he walks into the court and immediately begin to size up what kind of kickback, what kind of bribe, what kind of favor you can solicit out of that person by granting them a more favorable judgment? Have you not demonstrated those same kind of corrupt, evil intentions? Because this is often what's behind when you show favoritism to someone. You're hoping for something in return. You're hoping that they will recognize you. You're hoping that they will show you some sort of benefit, some sort of favor, some sort of, some sort of association at least. Introduce you to a network. Give you an opportunity to drop a name. Give you a, a connection to leverage that relationship into something that will benefit you. And all of it is detestable to the Lord and none of it has any place in the church and none of it reflect the values of the gospel. Which is why James gives us a third reason to renounce favoritism because favoritism is inconsistent, he says in verse 5, with the way that God has worked. God has chosen the poor. As Jesus said, blessed are the poor for theirs is the kingdom of God. This is the way he's typically worked. If you look around in the church, these are the people that God has chosen and most of us have not come from erudite backgrounds. Most of us have not come from privileged parentage. Most of us have not come from that level of society. And so James is saying we have to recognize this is where God normally works. These are the kind of people He calls. Just look around you at who the Lord has brought into the church. He's not saying that it's only poor people, nor is he saying that every poor person will be always entering in the kingdom of God, always saved, but he's saying this is typical. And there are reasons for that that we expounded last time, reasons why those who are 
underprivileged in the world are sometimes more ready for the gospel. But all James is doing, he's not expounding any of that. He's just pointing out the fact that you must recognize God's work typically is among the very people that you are shunning. Fourthly, you have to recognize that favoritism is ignorant of the typical response of the rich. That is to say, on the flip side of this, just like every poor person is not a believer, every rich person is not someone who blasphemes and attacks the gospel, but typically, that is the way it goes. People who are successful have a tendency to believe that their success is because of their own inherent and intrinsic righteousness, their own ingenuity. They have a tendency to fail to recognize God and, on top of that, believe that their success earns them the right to indulge their flesh and their impulses. They resent anyone who tells them otherwise. They resent anyone who tells them that they're acting selfishly. And they especially resent Christians. And so historically, those who are wealthy in the world have lashed out at the church and done their best to destroy it in one way or another. And so how are you going to avoid that kind of response with the wealthy if you are showing deference to them. You have to do one of two things. You have to adjust your focus off of them or you have to adjust your message. You have to pander to their cravings. You have to show them favoritism to keep them happy. You have to show them somehow that you're going to tone down your message and allow them to continue on in whatever their indulgences are. You, you have a recipe for abandoning and deviating from the gospel. And James wants you to understand this is the danger of favoritism. Well, all that kind of brings us up to speed from last time and gets us to where we are today, which is our last two remaining points in James' little section here, his fifth reason that he gives to us to renounce favoritism and treat all people equally in the love of Christ comes in verses 8 through 11. And it's this, favoritism is insurgent against the royal law. Favoritism is insurgent against the royal law. It is rebellious. It is, it is insubordinate. It transgresses the royal law, it is disobedient to the royal law, the supreme law, the law of Christ. And he writes this there in verse 8, if you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted as a transgressor. Now here's another hypothetical statement, just like he said back in verse 2 about the rich man, if he walks in and if you respond this way and if all this happens, well, here he's giving us another hypothetical situation. He's telling us that if you are fulfilling the royal law, loving everyone as yourself, then you're doing well. But if, in verse 9, you don't, You're a transgressor. Now, what does all this mean? What does James mean by royal law? He calls it the royal law, which is according to the Scripture. And then he immediately quotes from the Scripture. In fact, he quotes from Leviticus 19.18, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So he talks about this royal law. He talks about this law which he says is according to Scripture, then he quotes from Scripture and he quotes from the Old Testament. What is it? Is it the same thing as the Old Testament law? Or or why is he even talking about law at all? I mean, aren't we as Christians, aren't we free from laws? Aren't we supposed to be released from all that? Didn't Christians get rid of the Old Testament and all of that stuff when Jesus came? Why is James still using this language about the law and quoting from the law? Where does all that come from? Well, it's true when you read through the New Testament, it is typical for the New Testament to speak about the law in a generally negative fashion. 
For example, Galatians 3.22, Paul says, All who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. Or he says in verse 25, that now that faith has come, you're no longer under a tutor or a guardian or a disciplinarian, which is the law. He says in Romans 8, verse 2, the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Verse 3, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And he condemns sin in the flesh. Romans 10, 4, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Or Colossians 2, 17, these things, that is Old Testament laws, are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So the New Testament, whenever it addresses the issue of law, it addresses it over and over again in a very negative way. So why is James quoting laws and speaking to us about law and royal law and all of this other stuff. Well, you need to understand one really important point. You have to understand the way the New Testament uses the word law. Or more importantly, you need to understand the way that Jews understood the word law. For Jews, the law was more than just a set of commandments. It wasn't the Ten Commandments. It wasn't even the 600 commandments or whatever you might be. Whenever you see the language of the law used in the Bible, you never see that language ever, ever. You never see the Ten Commandments ever called the Ten Commandments. It is always called the law, singular, not even plural. You don't even find law plural in the, in the Scripture, it, or I should say, not that I'm aware of anywhere. I haven't done a comprehensive search, but I, I would say in a, a comprehensive fashion, when the law is spoken of in the New Testament, the law is a unity. It is a singularity, a contained unit. And that's because the law for a Jew meant not just a commandment or a series of commandments. The law meant the law covenant. The law covenant. Or you could write it as a single word, the law-covenant. It involved not just a series of things to do or not to do. It involved the whole basis of how you approached God. The whole system of how you relate to God. It involved the way you have a relationship with God. Or we might say in more modern terms, it was an arrangement. This was the arrangement under which they operated. The arrangement of their relationship with God. The arrangement of how they approached God. And so it was a covenant, a law covenant, which included commandments. The law and the law in Jewish terms was the Torah, the law covenant. Now, when the New Testament speaks about the law being done away with, this is what it's talking about. It's talking about the law covenant or the law arrangement. And you can see that, by the way, over in the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, as Paul talks about this, he separates this idea even from the law and its, and its commandments. He talks about us who were Gentiles in the flesh and, and the uncircumcised. We were separated from Christ and alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise. But he says that we who were far off have now been brought near. Verse 14, for he himself is our peace who has made us both into one having broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments. So it is the law, singular, made up of all of these stipulations and all of these commandments. So when the Scripture speaks about the law, it is this entity, the law covenant, the law arrangement, 
that, that, that defined your relationship with God. It defined the way you approached God. It defined the way you interacted with God. It's primary and primarily referring to the fact that this law arrangement, when the New Testament speaks about it, it's referring to the fact that this law arrangement has been abolished. It's been done away with. It's no longer the way you relate to God. It's no longer the way you approach God. The, the law covenant, or sometimes it's called the Mosaic covenant, or sometimes it's just called the old covenant. The law covenant has been replaced with something called the new covenant. The new covenant is an, it's a covenant, it's an arrangement that has been established by Jesus Christ. He established this new arrangement, this new covenant, when He was nailed to the cross and sacrificing Himself, He paid the penalty for every failure that you would ever have for keeping whatever commandment there might be. He paid the penalty for every sin. And so, He completely removed this whole issue of not keeping commandments, of not living up to a standard. He removed all that stuff out of the way in terms of relating to God and how you, how you get to God and how you approach God. Now we relate to God not by keeping commandments and not by doing all these things. We relate to God through believing in Jesus. Believing and trusting His sacrifice and believing in His resurrection. That's how you approach God. Not through commandments, but through trust in the all-sufficient sacrifice of Christ who paid the penalty for all your failures, for all your sins. Now, because of all that, the law covenant has been replaced. But listen to this. The law, the commandments, are still there. The law covenant has been done away with. The law, the law arrangement has been abolished. But the laws are still there. When Jesus abolished the law covenant, the law arrangement, and replaced it with the new covenant, He did not do away with the Old Testament. In fact, listen to what He says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one jot or tittle will pass away. One not, not one iota, not one dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches other people to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So if you have someone come along and begin to teach people to ignore the law, to ignore the Old Testament, you have someone leading you down a dangerous pathway. So the law covenant, the law arrangement is gone, but the law is still there. But listen to this. It is the law... Not now as having dominion over you. It isn't the law in the sense of that which now dominates or governs your life. Binding you to its precepts. Now you have a relationship with God now that is totally apart from the law. It's through faith in Jesus Christ. And it is immutable. It can't be changed. It can't be threatened by the law. So this law relationship as having dominion over you is gone, but the law is still there. Not 
as dominion, but as direction. The law's there, not as dominion, but as direction. This is what Paul tells the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 9, verse 20. He says, to the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law. Again, you notice, just law, not plural, but singular. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not myself being under the law, that I might win those who were under the law. To those outside of the law, that is to Gentiles, I became as one outside of the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ. So Paul says, look, I'm no, I'm no longer under the law like I was whenever I was in that law covenant system. I'm no longer under that, but now I am free to reach those in the law, outside the law. But guess what? I'm not outside the law of God. I'm not outside of law, he says. I'm under the law of Christ, meaning that I deal with the law not as someone whose relationship with God is threatened by my failure in keeping the commandments. I am under the law of Christ. Meaning that this Law covenant doesn't have dominion over me anymore, thankfully, because I'm under the law of Christ. But being under the law of Christ, I'm also under the law of God. That's why you see Paul saying that we're no longer under the law, and at the same time, he quotes from the law again and again and again. He quotes from the Torah for Christians, for Gentile Christians. Because he understood that while we're no longer under that dominion, the law is very helpful in giving direction. In fact, turn with me to the book of Timothy, 2 Timothy You can go back just a few pages probably in your Bible beyond the book of Hebrews to the book of 2 Timothy in chapter 3, and he's writing to young Timothy, and he tells him in verse 14 of chapter 3, as for you, he says, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you've learned them and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings. What sacred writings? What is Paul talking about? What writings, sacred writings, would have been available to Timothy in his childhood? Well, let me tell you this. It had nothing to do with the New Testament. The New Testament hadn't been written when Timothy was a child. The sacred writings that he's talking about, obviously, is the Old Testament. And he says those sacred writings are able to make you what? wise. There's wisdom in those sacred writings. They're able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. And when you use them in conjunction with faith in Jesus Christ, they have tremendous benefit. In fact, he tells him in verse 16, all Scripture, all Scripture is breathed out by God and it's profitable. All Scripture, not just New Testament Scripture, but all of it, including the sacred writings of the Old Testament that you had learned from childhood, all of it, all of it is profitable. That's why you continue in it, Timothy. That's why you continue in the things that you've learned from your childhood. It's profitable, he says, for what? For teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be completely equipped Complete, excuse me, equipped for every good work. In fact, if you know anything about the book of Timothy, you know that Paul himself, in writing to Timothy, even quotes from the Old Testament. Over in 1 Timothy 5, verse 18, he quotes from the Old Testament law whenever he's trying to teach Timothy a principle about paying ministers. He says in 1 Timothy 5, 18, the Scripture says... You shall not muzzle the ox while it's treading out grain. That's Deuteronomy 25.4. 
So here's the Apostle Paul who over and over and over again told people that we've been freed from the law, that we're no longer under the guardian system, we're no longer under the disciplinarian, or we're no longer under this Old Testament, Old Covenant, Law Covenant system. But at the same time, he wanted Timothy to continue in the things he had learned from childhood. He wanted him to understand the profitability of the entirety of God's Word. And he even frequently appealed to the Old Testament law for the sake of instruction for Timothy. Another way to say this is that the law teaches me important principles, valuable lessons that you need to understand. Not because every one of the laws is applicable to my situation. Some of them clearly are not applicable. For example, all of the laws that require me to do something particular because I'm guilty of some sin. All of those laws are no longer applicable to me. You know why? Because through the sacrifice of Christ, I'm no longer guilty of sins. Because He's wiped away all of that guilt. So those laws, those laws are no longer applicable. They may teach me something about the law, excuse me, about the sacrifice of Christ. They may help me understand it in a more profound way, but they're not applicable to me in that way. And so they're profitable, if not applicable. But there are other laws, other parts of the Old Testament that do give wisdom, that do give direction. Paul quotes from them. In Ephesians, when he's talking about children, he, he quotes from the Ten Commandments in giving reason why kids ought to submit and obey, to their, uh, obey their parents. Now, that is a very long detour to get back to the book of James. You can tell when I'm out of the pulpit a couple weeks, get things on my mind. James, a long way around to say this is the way you need to understand James. Because he is going to quote to us from the Old Testament law. And we need to understand what he's doing here. He says in verse 8, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Quoting there from the book of Leviticus. And what he's saying is, if you show favoritism, you are violating the most basic law, the law of love, the most basic, or I guess you might say the most supreme law, the royal law, the law that summarizes all other laws. Remember, Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? And he answered, quoting from Leviticus 19.18, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, and that along with loving God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. He says those two commandments summarize all of the law and all of the prophets. And guess what? Those two commandments are as binding on you today as anything. All the law, all the prophets. Jesus didn't respond and say, oh, you know, the greatest law, you don't, you don't have to worry about that stuff anymore. Don't you know that all that stuff is just useless? All that law is passing away. Don't you know that that stuff has nothing to do with you? He's saying that laws, commandments, all can be summarized in those two things. And so they demonstrate, the laws do, the will of God even while, at the same time, they do not govern your relationship to God. You're not under those laws as a law covenant. Well, James is reminding us still of the point that they do give us direction. He calls this the royal law because it's the law that governs all other laws, or at least in the sense of our relationship to other people. Maybe not in our relationship to God, but in our relationship to other people. This is the law that governs all laws of interpersonal relationship. 
Love your neighbor as yourself. It is the royal law that governs your relationships. And James says this, if you are letting that govern all your relationships with everyone else, then great. You're doing great. That's wonderful. I mean, if you're loving everybody exactly the way that you want to be loved, if you're caring for people the same way that you would care for yourself, if you're thinking about their comfort, their clothing, their food, their housing, their employment, their career, if you're thinking about them as much as you think about yourself, then that's great. Wonderful. Wonderful. But, on the other hand, if you show favoritism, partiality, prejudice, discrimination, you are convicted by the law as a transgressor. Or let me say it this another way. You cannot minimize this sin. You can't say, well, you know what? I, I think I'm okay. I mean, I... I I read my Bible every day, I go to church every week, I give in the offering plate, I sing, I, you know, I serve in some way, I help teach a Sunday school, I I set up chairs, whatever it might be. I, you know, it's, it's kind of, I'm just not comfortable around those people. Uh, They, I just don't know what to say when I'm around them. Uh, You know, I, I don't really know what to do with myself. It's just kind of an awkward situation. So I just kind of avoid them because, because I, I mean, I'm just uncomfortable, guilty. Guilty. Guilty is what James is saying. You are convicted as a transgressor. And you cannot escape it. You can't minimize it. You can't develop this system whereby some things are more important than other things and that you're doing the important things and if you ignore or shun or avoid this person over here, that that's okay because you got all the rest of your life together. It doesn't work that way, he says. You are not, admit, you are not uh, 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 passing over. Or you're not just breaking some little tiny law. You know what you're breaking? You're breaking the royal law. You're breaking the king of them all. The one that says that you're supposed to love your neighbor as yourself. You're breaking that one. So you're starting at the top. Transgressor, by the way, is a powerful, powerful word. It means someone who directly disobeys, or I should say, someone who disobeys a direct command. They cross over a boundary, they defy a regulation, a control, a rule. They are, in other words, a rebel. So James says, if you're showing favoritism, you are in rebellion against the whole law because you violated the royal law and you're demonstrating a heart that therefore disregards the whole law. Now, James explains this in verse 10 a little further for us so that we can get our minds around this. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of it all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. But if you do not commit adultery but you do murder, you've become a transgressor. Now, I don't really know why James chose these two uh, options. Some people speculate it's because that these are the two laws that Jesus dealt with in the Sermon on the Mount. I don't really know. But maybe, maybe he is, is just wanting to use extreme examples. But whatever it might be, the point is clear. That the law is a unity. It's a whole. And so if you keep some of the laws but fail... At even one point or some points, you're guilty of all of it. You can't pick and choose. You can't say, well, you know what, I, I'm okay. You know, I'm not, I'm not like that other guy over there. I mean, I'm not that bad. 
Maybe, maybe your issue is adultery, and maybe you kind of think, you know, I, I, I can't help myself. It's a passion. It's a love. It's a romance thing. I'm just drawn. But I mean, I don't understand. Someone takes a gun, goes into a, a store, and shoots up people, or walks down the street and just mows them. I couldn't understand that kind of hatred. James says, you, you, you are the murderer. You are the adulterer, you're the thief, you're the idolater, you are everything that the law says about you. You're guilty of all of it. So no more hiding. You're here this morning, I don't know whether or not you know God, I don't know whether or not you follow Christ, I don't know how you've thought about yourself in the past, but this is what God says about you. He says that if you break one of His laws, then you're guilty of all of His laws. You know why that is? Because there's only one or two laws that govern all of them. The one law says that you owe to God to love Him with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the other law says that you're to love other people as you love yourself. And so if you don't love other people the way you love yourself, if you are, if you are disregarding your, your uh, marriage vows, disregarding your love for your kids, running off on some sort of selfish, uh, adulterous bent, or if you're pulling out your handgun and mowing people down and, and all of that, it doesn't matter what the particular law is. You're still violating the royal law. And so therefore, you are a rebel against all the laws. James says you are guilty, as guilty as anyone else, as liable before God as anyone else. You apply this to the issue of favoritism. You apply this to the issue of preference and prejudice and discrimination. You're guilty. You demonstrate unequal Love in a way that God forbids, in a way that God Himself would never do. Well, uh, you know, if you're like me, you kind of like wave the white flag. I mean, it's true. I have shown favoritism. It's true. I have preferred other people. It's true. I have avoided some people. I mean, yeah, I'm guilty. Well, very quickly, this is why James shows us the sixth reason to renounce favoritism and treat all people equally in the love of Christ. Verse 12, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. Of liberty. Here he is bringing up law again, but now it's the law of liberty, or you could translate it, the law of freedom, meaning that you're free. That is the law. That's the governing, that's the governing structure that you're under now. You're not under the, the, the law covenant. Now you're under the law of liberty. So, I mean, I like these kinds of laws, personally. I like it, you know, if I go to court, they're saying, well, we're going to judge you, but what we're judging you by is the law that makes you free. I was like, yeah, I'll be there. Yeah, I'm not even going to bother getting an attorney. Law, I'm free. I like the law of liberty. And James is saying, this is the way you need to act. This is the way you need to speak. This is the way you need to talk about other people. This is the way you need to think about other people. You need to act and speak as a person who's going to be judged by this beautiful, beautiful law of liberty. Meaning that whenever you go before God, because of your faith in Jesus Christ, because of His sacrifice and His resurrection, you are going to be declared not guilty. In fact, as someone who reads this book of James and immediately recognizes that I have sinned and I am condemned... I, I want to go to Romans chapter 8, and I want to remember verse 1. Therefore, there's no condemnation 
for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set me free from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh. He condemned sin in the flesh. The law of life has set you free. The law of liberty has set you free. What a wonderful thing to know that although you have failed and failed repeatedly, that when you go stand before God, if you are in Jesus Christ, there's mercy. That if you're in Jesus Christ, you're going to be judged by a law that sets you free. Beautiful, beautiful phrase. But James doesn't stop there. Because he wants us to know, in verse 13, judgments without mercy to the one who shows no mercy. The one who says that he knows Christ but doesn't have mercy toward the poor. The one who says he's in Christ but doesn't have mercy toward the stranger. The one who says he's in Christ but doesn't have mercy towards the one who's not like him. That person probably shouldn't expect mercy. In fact, Jesus said this, you remember, over in Matthew chapter 5. I mean, Matt, James... In large part, James is simply an exposition of the Sermon on the Mount. Because he's using the same kind of language. Matthew 5, 7. Blessed are the merciful. Why? Because they will receive mercy. Who are the ones going to receive mercy? The people who are merciful. Or he says down in chapter 7, verse 2. You may remember this. Uh, chapter 7, verse 1, Judge not, lest you be judged. Why? Because, verse 2, For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it's going to be measured to you. Oh, you don't want to be around someone because they're difficult? Well, God will probably take the same standard with you. Oh, you don't want to be around someone because they're poor? Well, God will then measure your wealth next to His. Oh, you don't want to be around someone because they're, they're, they're sinful and corrupt? Well, then God is going to measure you by His holy standard and find you wanting. But those who are merciful will find mercy. Again, the Old Testament tells us this, Zechariah chapter 7, this is what the Lord Almighty says Administer true justice. Show mercy and compassion. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless or the foreigner or the poor. End quote. This is what God requires. This is what God does. And so if you want to be judged by the law of liberty, if you want to be judged by the law of freedom, if you want to be judged by the law of mercy, you need to show mercy. You need to live mercy. As James says, so speak and so act as the people who are going to make a claim on mercy. I've got to make a claim on mercy. I mean, when I stand before God, I, I have, I've got to have Him show me mercy. I have got to have Him overlook my obstinance. I've got to have Him overlook my difficulties. I've got to have Him overlook my impatience. I've got to have Him overlook my, my lack of, of anything to commend me. I've got to have him overlook that I'm a nobody from nowhere with nothing. I've got to have his mercy. And so if I'm going to make a claim on God's mercy, then I need to speak and I need to act like someone who understands that mercy. Favoritism. 
discrimination, prejudice, preference, all that stuff, it ought never, ever rear its head in the church. You look around this room, you see other people who are in Christ. What you see is an individual, no matter what their makeup, no matter what their dress, no matter what their background, what you see is an individual that Jesus died for. And he deserves your love because he, because he has Christ's. Well, let's stand together. We'll be dismissed with a word of prayer and a song. And we're so grateful this morning for this word. If you're here and you haven't thought much about judgment, but what you have thought has been anything but what we described this morning. You think about judgment. You think about condemnation. You think about standing before God and you know that you are guilty. This morning, we want you to know that you can be free. You can be be forgiven. You can have God's mercy. But the only way to do that is in Jesus Christ. So our challenge to you this morning is before you leave here today, that you wouldn't go on your own way, that you would submit your life, you would yield your life to Him as Lord, that you would believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead. The Scripture says if you do those two things, you will be saved. If you want to know more about how to have this gift of forgiveness and salvation, we'd love to share with you. We have a visitor reception right after the service. It's down the hall to the right. And if you are are interested, if the Lord is working in your heart and calling you today, please, please stop by there and see us so that we can open up the Scripture and show you this gift of salvation. Father, we're grateful for the Word of God this morning, so thankful that it teaches us and convicts us and gives us principles that can guide and direct our lives. At the same time, we're so grateful to be freed from the law covenant, to be brought now under the law of liberty, to know that we stand uncondemned before you, And that law in itself transforms us and makes us merciful. Help us then, Lord, to walk, to talk as those who have understood it. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.